Welcome to the Next Money Podcast, our regular look at the fintech scene, particularly here in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, my name's Rob Finlay. I'm the CEO of Next Money here in Singapore. And each week, we ask a leading fintech practitioner about their journey in changing financial services for the better. You can find out more about us and the latest fintech news at nextmoney.org, where some of you will know our big conferences and meetups across the world. Contact us today to be a part of those conferences and meetups and these podcasts and much more. Today's very special guest is Anthony Lewis, the Director of Research at R3 based here in Singapore and the writer of the terrific uh, blog bitsonblocks.net. I hope I got that right, Anthony, uh, which gives us a really great 101 worldview on Bitcoins and blockchains and distributed ledgers for those of us who are really trying to come to terms with this new technology. It's a, it's a, a rapidly growing uh, new area. Anthony, welcome to the Next Money podcast. Thanks, Robert. It's, a, um, it's, it's lovely to be here. So great. Look, we, look we, this whole area we're going to get into a bit later about what's involved, what's happening lately, what the most recent announcements are potentially from the industry, and also what we think this year is going to hold. But first, how does a banker get into blockchain technology, or is it is it actually perfectly natural? Uh, this is interesting. It depends on where you come from, whether you come from the the, the front office, middle office, or, or, or back office, or, or technology. Um, if you come from technology, perhaps it's the it's something about the way existing bits of technology have been put together to make a really, really interesting construct to let us do things that that previously weren't weren't possible. If you come from the front office, perhaps it's uh, how do I make money with this thing? How do I save money with this thing? Uh, middle office and back office are looking for efficiencies. So depending on where you're from, it um, that's that's probably the angle that that you approach this with. And where which which part of the banking industry did you come from? And then t- tell us the path from there. To R3 now. I, originally, I was an FX spot trader, so lots of flashing numbers, shouting shouting numbers at, at people, screaming things down telephones. Um, in 2008, I joined Credit Suisse to uh, in the IT department to actually build FX trading systems. So I went from being a user of FX trading systems to, to creating them, to building them. That took me from London to Singapore, where we where we built the team and we kind of grew the team. Um, and in 2013, I, I, I got the Bitcoin bug. Um, I left banking and I joined a, a, a tiny little startup called ItBit. They just raised a small amount of money uh, looking to hire people with, with my kind of background to build a Bitcoin exchange. Um, ItBit's now called Paxos. Uh, they're doing other things in the distributed ledger technology space. Um, uh, I, I left ItBit in 2015 and I was a, I was a professional blockchain um, consultant for, for a year. Uh, and then I joined R3 in late 2016. Right, so you obviously jumped out of the bank industry, but into into it bit, I suppose. And what was that leap like, going from a, a big bank to a very small business? Oh, of course, everything changes. You, you're you're going from uh, everything set up for you and, and and lots of process to 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 no process, complete chaos. But but you feel a little bit more alive working working in a startup. Um, there's lots more going on. You have a lot more impact. Would you have been one of the the early uh, pioneers, I suppose, of going to this world in a pretty deep way, or, or was was it back then there was quite a lot of people making this jump? I suppose um, Bitcoin started in, in, in 2009, really. Um, so I, I guess I wasn't super early, but in terms of people with financial services background uh, moving into this, um, especially in Asia, um, I'd consider myself one of, the, one of the earlier ones. So you're in R3 now, of course. Let's get really clear on, pardon me, on what that what R3 is, and let's get clear on what R3 does. Can you tell us what R3 is? 
So um, R3 is a startup, um, though we have over 100 members of staff now. We, we are a consortium of uh, banks and other financial institutions. So right now we've got almost 80 um, banks and, and FIs, um, who, and we provide them with, with a platform and services. Um, services we provide are project management services, um, research, um, and, and, and thought leadership, and access to both other consortium members uh, and, and regulators. Um, on the platform side, we have our own uh, distributed ledger technology called Corda. Uh, the word consortium, does it, does, it, does it sort of sound like a, uh, like, a, like a gathering of companies to create their own little little you know, form of reality? Or is it really uh, about everyone pitching into something in the middle and, and trying to build something together? Well, interestingly, we've managed to get um, 80 of the world's largest financial service organizations, competitors, fierce, fierce competitors, uh, to work together. And, th and that's no mean feat. Um, we don't run projects for all, all 80 at once, of, of course. That, that, that'll be very difficult to work. But we get groups of four or five, maybe up to 10, um, who have a, have a theory about distributed ledgers um, and want to try something out. And then we help them run projects and help them uh, educate themselves and ourselves and, and the whole community on what, the, uh, what this technology can do right now and where it's going. You mentioned projects. Uh, Tim Grant, your MD, uh, one of your MDs, I think it was at the Next Money FinTech Finals in Hong Kong in January. And one of the things he talked about on, on stage was about how um, there are different people doing different projects together. You mentioned projects. So some regulators are doing projects with banks. Is that correct? And what sort of projects might those guys do together? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've, we've seen regulators and central banks do projects um, facilitated um, by by buying with our three with banks. So, for example, in in November um, uh, November last year, uh, the MAS, the the Singapore Monetary Authority of Singapore, um, announced that they're running a project with with ten entities, including banks and and, and R three, um, to experiment with distributed ledger technology and see what would happen if if see if you could put Singapore dollar onto a distributed ledger and then see where that leads. See what benefits can can accrue to the industry. Um, once you once you put that piece in place, so what are these members getting out of it? How are they utilizing all this all this effort and and uh, sort of coming together? What are they getting the most benefit from? I, I like to use the gym analogy here. Um, so so members pay subscriptions to us, and we help them through this journey. Now they can sit back and, and do nothing, and they they don't get very much out of it. Or the ones that get the most out of our three membership are those who who dedicate resource, who participate in the largest number of projects. So we've got some members um, participating five, six, seven projects, um, throwing developers at this, and the developers are upskilling, uh, we're upskilling, and and it's moving the narrative on. So we're obviously focused in on this podcast in Asia Pacific mainly. We want, we're a global brand in reality, but we. We really want to talk about this region. How are you finding the the involvement um, and the, I guess the um, yeah, the needs of of those banks in the region? Okay, so in in, in Greater China, for example, we've got uh, active. We've got four members there: Ping An, um, China Merchants Bank (CMB), uh, China Mingsheng Bank (CMBC), and China Trust Bank (CTBC). China seems to be taking. Um, somewhat of a lead um, in Asia. Um, you'll see recently. You'll see an announcement from um, from the regulators talking about um, a, a central bank digital currency. Um, that's not to say that other countries um, aren't also doing things as well. So we have members in Japan, Korea, Singapore, um, and Hong Kong. How's what sort of uh, people are you dealing with at these banks? If I can ask, I mean, what, who are the people who are really interested in getting involved? And do you find the people that come forward are the ones that are going to be impacted the most? 
Yeah, good question. So we we have inbound uh, requests. It, it generally depends on on the the people themselves, not the department. We have we have interesting people coming forwards. They could be from IT. They could be they could be business leaders. They could be C suite. Um, and usually we start off with a um, with a with an exploratory conversation, which leads then onto um, us explaining the benefits of membership and and how we can bring that network together. We're, we're playing with distributed ledger technology here and the, the clues in the in the D and the distributed, there's no point in exploring this technology by yourself because the technology demands you do this in a group. So then you then you, then you explain the power of the consortium, the power of the network, and and then usually they become members. So you talked about di- the di- distributed ledger technology. What's the difference between that and blockchain? For the really, you know, I guess, novice listeners out there, what do they need to understand about the difference between those two things? Sure, absolutely. And I, I think this has got a bit confused by by the press. So um, I would imagine distributed ledger technology as as the, the umbrella. And one form of doing that is using a blockchain. So you can use a blockchain to achieve certain distributed things, um, to achieve certain, it's, it's a way of putting together a, a distributed ledger. But you can also have non-blockchain distributed ledgers. So the um, the, the DLT or the distributed ledger technology that, that we built at R3 um, doesn't use blockchains, um, but still achieves the goals that our, our, our consortium members wanted to achieve. Uh, does Bitcoin play any role at, at R3? I mean, this is obviously a, a particular application, I suppose, of blockchain or, or, or DLTs, but um, is it something you guys dabble in or do, you, do, you, do your clients or members ask about Bitcoin? Sure. Um, many of our stuff, many of our stuff came from from the Bitcoin space originally. Um, so three or four years ago, there was only Bitcoin that was built on a blockchain. Um, but nowadays, the the technology is, has kind of moved on and, and, and separated somewhat. Um, do we still talk about Bitcoin? Yes. Uh, does Bitcoin um, meet the needs, the functional requirements, and the non-functional requirements uh, that our that our members demand? Our members are remember then that they they're regulated financial services companies. Um, no, Bitcoin and those kinds of blockchains do not meet their requirements. So we've had to build our own one from scratch, which is where which is where Corda came about. Right. So so you can create digital currencies specifically for particular entities or organisations or a collection of of organizations together is that right yeah i mean we're, we're not looking at creating new digital currencies per se we're we're quarter and what we're doing is really about the um really about sharing uh, control of data between two entities. Whenever you do a trade, um, that's essentially an agreement or a contract or some sort of understanding between two companies. And that understanding changes as uh, as the market develops. So maybe maybe something happens in the market and, and so you owe me more money or I owe you more money. As those things change, we need to both be in constant agreement of, of, of the state of that uh, agreement. That's really what we're talking about. We've moved on from, from tokens being currencies and, and now we're talking about deals or business between between banks. Well, I think that's what you have one of your recent blog posts was about the notion of shared control, not shared data. Will will, will every bank be okay with that? I mean, why wouldn't you why wouldn't you want the similar the same data as your peers have across the road or across the wall? What 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 is shared control and why is it beneficial over shared data? Sure. So shared data is something we've had ever since we've had the internet. Um, the sharing of data is, is a solved uh, solved problem. I host something on a website, and you can you can pull it off the website. It's it's, it's relatively straightforward. What we've never had before, though, is this uh, is the shared control of that data as that data evolves, as states change, as things happen. Um, 
generally before distributed ledgers, I would calculate something in, in, in my systems, you would calculate something in your systems, and then we would reconcile, we'd try and agree the output of that later on. With distributed ledgers, we're, we're doing that reconciliation as we go along before it becomes a, a recorded fact. So we're building in, we're baking in reconciliation right into uh, the, the, the processes. Um, and to answer the, the other part of your question, yes, there is some data that's important that everyone should know. For example, um, uh, trading holiday or currency holidays when, when, when there's a bank holiday in the, for a specific currency. But there's, there's an awful lot of data which, um, which if you and I do a trade, we wouldn't want a third party to, to know about because it's proprietary and, and it has market impact. Um, so this concept of broadcast blockchains where all data is shared with all participants just, just doesn't work in this industry. Well, I think that was one of the original... Uh, features was this open, transparent, and you know, um, indisputable, immutable uh, transaction history or, or record of of of, of data movement, um, which very quickly became unattractive to a lot of people. I guess. Yeah, and look, that's exactly what you need if you're trying to build unstoppable digital cash. If you're trying to build Bitcoin, um, and you you. Uh, one of your premises is I don't trust anyone. I don't want anyone to be a third-party gatekeeper. Then you need some sort of system where where you have lots and lots of validators, and those validators need to see all of that data. And the whole thing has to be transparent. That's how you would design that. It's it's a really elegant solution. However, in in, in the world we operate in, we have known entities. We trust them. We we believe that code is not above the law. So if things go wrong, we can we can sue other parties, and and we kind of know how we're doing business here. We're using technology to support the way we're doing business in a more efficient way. So what are, you, what are the most exciting applications of that then for you? I mean, the one I keep hearing a bit about, and again, I'm not uh, an expert like yourself, but you know, certainly things like, apart from payments and, and um, some of those fundamental things, uh, but even things like trade finance and supply chain, those areas seem to be quite uh, heavily impacted by the concept of blockchain and what it can do. But also, I suppose there's about yeah about data capture and store storage, um, you know, establishing corporate entities, those kinds of things. What what are the areas? That, and we already know what some of them are just through the last couple of years of commentary. But what are the things that you're all really looking forward to seeing being impacted this year? I know Tim was talking about this year being the year of the the POC, the the pilot. Uh, whereas next year is about you know, imp- getting it done and implementing. What are you looking forward to seeing pilots of this year that are meaningful and actually kind of tangible? Yeah, so um, uh, we're a bit further on than that. Uh, last year was the was was the year of the proof of concept, the POC. This year we've got to do something. Right. Uh, this year, by the end of this year, we've committed to to putting something in production that adds value to our members, that that is useful, that that saves money and reduces risks. Um, so so. I'm not sure I can talk very much about uh, about what what that end solution is, um, but but I'm I'm I I think that we will have something in production by by year end. M- this is going to happen much much faster than what people were talking about last year, which was it's a five year, it's a ten year horizon. And where's that that speed and pace of development coming from? Is it just natural technology at the moment? You know, the, every, from energy to to data capture and storage to, to, to transportation to climate science, those things are really just dramatically pushing forward fast. Is it just a natural, I guess, attention to this area or is it something you've broken through and found a new way? Um, I, th- I think to a certain extent, we the, the technology has moved on and now and now unlocks certain things which we didn't think were possible with pure blockchains. Um, uh, there's a lot of pressure from people who have invested money into this to, to see something come out of it. Uh, we've got more and more really smart people working in the space now and you need people, you need intelligent people to work on this to, to drive it a result. And, Every way, every direction you look, there's there's more and more interest and more and more momentum. Um, interestingly, 
sometimes when things get closer to production, when things get closer to a commercial viability, you hear less about them because they become a secret. They become something that that um, that people need to to not talk about so they can create it and then and then commercialize it. Um, your title is interesting, the Director of Research at R3, and that's based here in Singapore. What what does the research function of, of R3 do? Sure. So globally, we, we have five researchers. Um, we've got we've got a, 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 two, a three in the US and two in Singapore. Um, we do two things. Firstly, market uh, understanding the market. So market scans, getting to know the, the the tech vendors who can who can possibly help our help our members. Um, and 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 the second part of it is is kind of explaining the story, explaining the narrative to those people who might not be so technical, but who are fascinated by this technology. Um, so that includes uh, and everything from blog posts through to academic white papers, um, blog posts for C-suite, academic white papers um, for, for kind of nerdier people or the academic types, people who want to get really into the detail. Um, so we, we understand and we explain. How have you found, um, I guess, the involvement or the understanding of, of this area from the, the large tech firms? Have they been receptive or have they been involved in, in the consortium? And, and what do you think the role that they'll play will be? Yeah, large tech firms are definitely interested, have definitely been involved. Um, they are larger, so to a certain extent, they, they can't move as, as quickly or as nimbly as, as, as some of the, the younger um, startups. Um, I, think, I think the role tech firms will have to play, they have existing relationships with, with our members, with, with the banks and the, the financial institutions. Um, they've got good relationships. They're already selling products into them. Um, they need to understand what this technology can do for their products, build it into their products, create products on top of these uh, DLT platforms, these distributed ledger technology platforms, um, and then and then give the sell those benefits to to their clients, the the banks and the financial institutions. Uh, one thing we touched on a little bit earlier, I think, but we want I want to ask you particularly is about uh, if we have more than one blockchain. If there's if there's blockchains you can make for certain companies or specific uh, applications. What's the interoperability like across those different blockchains? Does it need to happen? Is there going to be one single uh, uh, language or, or understanding across those different blockchains, or is it still a really big challenge? Oh, this is a great question. It's, it's I, I think about this and I, I, I hear about this almost every day. Um, I kind of see the problem split in two ways. One is if you have the same flavor of, of distributed ledger, um, you have many kind of instances, many separate networks. Can you get them to talk to each other? Right. And can an asset on one network be transferred to the other network? Um, and the answer to that is is probably yes. And and it's much easier to do that than when you have separate flavors of uh, of distributed ledgers. Um, the challenge will be getting the different flavors to to talk to each other in in a meaningful way at a, at a very granular way. And that is being worked on by the industry. We we know that's a problem. We know we have to work together to to create solutions. Otherwise, none of them um, will, will will have as much value as the whole thing put together. Here's a theory. So does that mean that potentially <clears throat> an industry vertical like uh, the coal sector? or um, the manufacturing sector, either across countries or in one particular country, will try and create some sort of agreement between all the different parties that this is the commonality between all of the way we worked and these are the things that you can do separately. Do you think it'll self-organise like that or will it take something else to try and make it work? Yes, I... I most, I think, I think the uh, the DLTs that will succeed are the open source ones. And the thing, the great thing about open source is anyone can download it and play with it and build on it. Um, I think that industry by industry, you'll 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 see uptake um, of, of this technology. Um, 
and the world will probably end up with three or four um, we hope compatible uh, distributed ledger technologies that that make sense for those industries. Um, the 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 technology we're building, Corda, um, is designed specifically for financial institutions. So it, it builds in all of the stuff that our banking members need. Um, maybe someone else comes up with a, a pharmaceutical one. Maybe someone comes up with a, with an agricultural one. And sure, we as an industry, we have to work together to make sure they can talk to each other. There's no point in having a ledger for farming equipment if it can't talk money. It makes life complicated, Anthony, I suppose, because you've got to really <clears throat> think of all these, as you as you guys do, you've got to think of all these different uh, participants, stakeholders in a particular use case. It can't just be the bank wants it this way, therefore we do it that way. It's it's all these different people involved in different entities. It must be pretty fascinating. Hmm. Um, one of those, I presume, though, is is the likes of law firms and, and who probably have a similar mindset to regulators, how we wrap some sort of legal code around this. What, what do you think the law firms or the people who are helping write policy, how are they reacting to this technology that given it's advancing fast, they probably know what it is, but they probably haven't realised now, wow, it's actually getting real. It's getting into banks, inside systems, inside processes. How do we wrap policy around that? Have you helped guide some people on that? Sure, we work with we we've worked with a number of law firms writing uh, thought leadership, writing white papers. They're writing those. They're writing those as we speak. They're yeah. writing them as we sp- we're doing them as we speak. We've published some um, in different countries, different geographies, and and um, the 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 ecosystem in different geographies is always is always slightly different. Um, I think the answer is to keep collaborating, keep working with them so that they understand the technology. Now, we don't believe that code is above the law. If your code spits out something that is that is not part of your agreement, that is not legal, then then um, the courts will take precedence over code. Um, so you have to work with the lawyers. There, there'll always always be some sort of uh, contract um, that binding binding parties in a business deal. The code is there to support the contract to make it more efficient. But if if something happens that that is outside of what the code can 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 understand or has 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 thought of, then you need to be able to hit stop on the code, go to the courts, get a decision, and then come back to the code to carry on automating. <clears throat> That's a, a bit of a headache, I suppose, for the banks. They've got to try and think of all these things at once about how it can drive efficiency, it can drive costs down, as you say. It can potentially become a, a competitive advantage to get things to market more quickly. It can create cross-border advantages. But <clears throat> the regulatory or the compliance challenges must be still sort of spinning a lot of heads in the banks, I guess. Com- um, challenges and opportunities. Um, so so when, we, when we talk with compliance functions, some of them get it. Some of them realize that this is the technology they've been looking for, which is going to help them with their, with their compliance challenges because now using this technology, suddenly um, you can have a regulator tap into these networks um, and you can, you can bake your compliance, uh, you can bake your compliance requirements right into the technology so it just delivers what it needs to deliver. Um, it's probably not as quite as simple as that, but we're talking with the compliance officers. We're also talking about uh, we're talking with the regulators, the people who are asking for these these data feeds and and and, and transparency in the markets. So uh, the key is collaborate collaborating with with the right members, and that's quite a it's quite a, a big job. So just to expand on that, so the last couple of questions, I suppose. So is there any part of the, of a bank that potentially can't be impacted or untouched by some sort of of DLT or blockchain solution? Is it really something that we can use everywhere? Although I've heard you say before, <laughs> sometimes you just need an Excel spreadsheet and that does the job fine. Is that still the case? Is it really something that we could use in almost every part of the bank or is it extremely, is it really best to be quite pointed about its application? Yeah, so 
Right now, we see the benefits coming from when the bank needs to interact with either its customers uh, or custodians or, or other banks. So it's 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 the glue that holds uh, separate entities together, um, so they can do business with each other. Um, now that said, the technology is evolving at a really rapid pace. So so could it evolve to to create some really really um, interesting beneficial internal use cases? Quite possibly. Uh, right now, we think it's it's in between entities. If I put you on the spot, though, I want to see if you can describe for me three customer scenarios of, of, a, of the perfect solution, right? And I think that's what a lot of us are grasping with a little bit is we understand the deep systemic impact. But what I want to get to very quickly, being a uh, next money, being a lot uh, about design and, and customer experience, is what's it going to mean to a, an average retail customer? What's it going to mean to an average private bank customer? And what will it mean to a small business? I mean, we can probably imagine what's going to happen to the large organisations that are institutional relationships with banks. But will a person on the street, either managing their wealth or running their small business or trying to just make ends meet, what impact are they going to feel that you would love this technology to really deliver to them? Sure. Firstly, identity is is something that's being being looked at um, by by a lot of people in this space. So the the ability to have your own uh, uh, identity uh, details in a way that banks can consume easily. So not only this is my name, but here's proof that this is my name. Here's proof that comes from that's been stamped and signed by an authority. Um, which says that this is my name, and to have that bundle, that wallet of uh, of all your identity um, details that you can reuse um, bank to bank to bank. So this is a small problem for individuals. So when you move countries, something like that. Um, it's a larger problem for uh, small to medium businesses where, who have to provide a lot more uh, information to the bank. It, it takes a long time and it's it's expensive. Um, being able to have that in a digital format that um, that is consumable by banks, that banks can and can automate that process will save time and costs and and make the hopefully make the experience a, a lot more pleasurable of of of, on, of onboarding um that's one thing now a lot of the 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 initial uh, benefits of this technology is business to business is and and you're reducing costs and you're reducing risks so how does that impact the the end user possibly lower fees possibly faster payments possibly faster processing of things and possibly more um, visibility into when things may happen. Right now, um, if you some payments you make can take three to five working days, and the problem isn't that it's three or five; it's that it's three to five. So you can never plan when it's going to hit. You're always checking on on through different channels. Has it hit yet? Have you got it yet? Yep. Um, if you knew it was going to be four days and two hours, if you knew exactly when, you you could plan a lot better. So it's not really the time between when you when you pull the trigger and when the money hits the account or, or the trade settles or whatever it is it's knowing exactly when it's going to happen um that could be of benefit to 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 your retail user for for making let's say international payments for a private wealth customer you know given they've probably got potentially complicated setups of you know uh, money in various entities various vehicles potentially various jurisdictions and countries is this the sort of thing that's going to make their life better or it could end up exposing a bit of what they're doing um sure so are they are they looking to if, if they're active investors um possibly they have more control over their portfolio they'll know when when they buy something then they'll know when they when they get it uh, i'm talking financial assets here uh if they have complex lives possibly the um how you open an account could 
could change if if they have um, their identity bundle, which they can carry around with them around the world, and just and use that to, to to open accounts at different financial institutions. That could be more delightful for them, and it could be cheaper for the banks uh, trying to open that account. So, and and also. We've, we're talking about high net worth, but what about at the at the other end of the spectrum? If you reduce the onboarding costs, if you re- reduce some of the costs um, that, that banks currently have, you can make non-profitable customers profitable, um, therefore opening it up to, to, to pushing down that pyramid um, and opening it up to, to, to people who wouldn't necessarily be have access to those bank accounts. That's a really great, a great point, I think, that if it helps bring people onto the investment sort of train of sorts in a simpler way that is easy to understand and is transparent to them to themselves that's a that's a fantastic benefit last question then so if you if you again we'll do the future gazing as we always do on the show so if you look forward 2030 let's go way back way out there i'm sorry it's a long way away 2020 is probably far enough these days <clears throat> what are you excited about what what how do you draw a picture of what will have happened uh, how deep the impact might have gone? Are we thinking every bank will have at least lots of, you know, a, a majority of implementations across their business of a blockchain of sorts? Or what do you think it's going to look like? Yeah, 2020, I hope we're not going to be arguing about the definition of blockchains and distributed ledgers. I hope that this is just going to be part of IT. This is tech. And this is a really, really great technology um, that can reduce risks and reduce costs and, 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 and make things more efficient. I'm really hoping we're not having the... These kinds of discussions, and we're just talking about the benefits for for the end users, whether the the retail users or or the businesses. Well, great, Anthony. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, that's it for today's show. Many thanks to our guest Anthony Lewis from uh, R three. Visit r three dot com for more, and also check out uh, Anthony's fantastic. Uh, blog as well, bitsonblocks.net. You can go to corda.net, C-O-R-D-A.net, to find out more about uh, the DLT technology built uh, with and for financial institutions. And uh, get in touch with us today if you want to be on the show and go to nextmoney.org to find out about our news, conferences and other podcasts. We'd love to have your interest um, and have you on the show. We'll speak to you next time on the Next Money Podcast. Next Money Podcast.